Next weekend is an important and exciting weekend in the life of our church. Uh, Brandon Anderson is coming in view of a call to serve as our next student minister. And we have several events planned where you can get to know him. You can get to know his wife, Caroline. Many of you know her. She grew up in our church. And uh, I hope you will make that a priority to, to get to know them next weekend through those events. As you're getting to know them, just like as you're getting to know anybody, we, we tend to share key significant facts about our life. We, we, we tend to talk about where we're from. We tend to talk about who our family is. We tend to talk about what we do, right? where we work. We talk about what we enjoy. We talk about you know, key moments in our life. This is just a part of getting to know somebody. You, you learn about them. You learn some of these uh, key facts and stories about them. And I mention this because today we are going to be looking at one of these types of passages in the Bible. It's a passage that's not only necessary and important for understanding the book of 2 Samuel. We're looking at a passage that is necessary for understanding the whole Bible. It's right on par with a passage like Genesis 3, where God promises Eve's going to have a son who's going to crush the serpent's head. It's right on par with Genesis 12 and God promising Abraham he's going to make a nation out of him. And the passage we're looking at today, similar to the first two I just mentioned, is a promise. And it's a promise that to some extent, the rest of the Bible is either looking for the the fulfillment of this promise with anticipation, or looking back and saying, this was the fulfillment of that. Listen to this quote. One scholar said it like this. The passage that we're looking at is the most crucial theological statement in the Old Testament. So this passage is not only crucial for understanding the Bible, it's crucial for understanding God, in other words. And so we're going to look at the key key passage for understanding who God is, who we are in his story. So if you would please turn to this important passage, 2 Samuel chapter 7. If you are able, please stand and honor the reading of God's word. I am going to begin reading in verse 8. And just a reminder, this is the very inspired word of our God. Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly, from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever." I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Let's pray. Father, help us understand this significant text so that we rightly understand who you are, what you've done, and who we are, and our role in your story. We pray pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So as I mentioned, this passage is a promise. 
Psalm 89 refers to it as a covenant. It is very similar to the promise made to Abraham. In fact, when we looked at that promise made to Abraham, we said there were four key aspects we want to focus on. Today, we're going to look at four key aspects of this promise to David, and I hope you see so many similarities between the two. What we're looking at today is really a continuation of a promise made to Abraham. And so we're going to begin with this. The first, first of all, we have the promise of a great name or a great legacy. God tells David in verse 9, he's going to give him a great name. And notice the emphasis on where he's coming from. Notice the, the emphasis on the humble beginnings. God says, I took you from the pasture. Verse 8. We talked last week about how David was just a shepherd boy. And, and his father didn't even consider him when he was told Samuel's coming to town and he, he wants to consider your sons as the next king. He didn't even consider David. He's just a little shepherd boy. And even Samuel starts with the oldest first. And so it says that he took, he took David, who was following the sheep. Notice that phrase, following the sheep. I don't know if there's something behind this, but David goes from being a person who's following sheep to being a person who's leading the nation of Israel under God's rule. He's a prince, but he's a king. And God was with him, verse 9, and gave him victory. We see victories in, in chapter 8 and chapter 10 of 2 Samuel, some of the victories. And uh, he's told, you're going to be one of the great ones of the earth. Now let's ask this question. Did that happen? Is David today considered one of the great ones? I would say yes. You know, if, if you were to go stop a random person on the street and say, Perhaps they have no church background, no Bible background. But you were to say to them, have you ever heard of a King David in the Bible? I think most of them would say, I think, yeah, I've heard of him. You know, he's one of the great ones. I did a search to see how many times he's referenced in the Bible. The answer is 1,141 times. Pretty important. 59 times he's referenced in the New Testament. He's one of the great ones. And yet, like we said last week, we see humility with David. We see it again today, even after he's told, you're going to be one of the great ones. I'm going to give you a great name. Notice his response in verse 18. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, who am I? O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me thus far? By the way, that's how all the great ones in the Bible respond. Who am I? Who am I that you would call me to this task? Right? And ten times in this passage, he refers to himself as God's servant. I'm just a servant. And this raises a question I think we ought to consider. Why does God value humility? Is it hypothetically possible that God could have chosen to value arrogance? Like, I'm looking for people who are really arrogant. That's the, those are the people I want on my team. Is that even possible that God could have done that? I think the answer is no. Because it doesn't reflect his character. There's something about humility that reflects the very character of God. And we see something of God's humility even in this passage. The, the passage starts out with David feeling guilty because David's living in a pretty nice house. And David says, you know, I feel guilty. I'm living in this nice palace. And the ark of God, which represents the presence of God, is being housed in a tent. So I'm going to build God a nice building. I'm going to build God a, a temple. And God comes to him and basically says, no, you're not for several reasons, and we'll explore some of those. But one of the reasons that God gives to him is in verse 6. God says, you're not going to build me a temple. I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling since Egypt. God says, the tent works just fine for me. 
I don't need a house. Thank you. Right? Now, I think this is a good time for us to pause and remind ourselves, God is present everywhere. All of God is present in all places. He's not more present in some places. He's not, he's not less present in other places. He's equally present everywhere. That's part of what it means to be God, uh, omnipresent. But he chooses at times to, to be present in a special way in special places. And uh, in, in those times, it, it's, it, but he doesn't need, he doesn't need a building. He doesn't need a temple. And, and, and Acts tells us this. Acts 17, 24 and 25. God says, God does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. He doesn't live in buildings made by man. Why? He's present everywhere. He needs none of it. But he chooses to be present in special ways among his people. And when he's present in special ways among his people, many times it was in a tent. I think we see something of God's humility, his condescension. He chooses to dwell among his people in a tent, a tabernacle. And it's no coincidence that John 1.14 uses this, this, this concept, this imagery, this language, and says the word took on flesh and dwelt among us. And that word dwelt, it means it's tabernacle. It's the word for tabernacle. He tabernacled among us. God took on flesh and tented among us as a man, as a person. That, that's, that's the greatest miracle of the whole Bible. I mean, how's that even possible? How can God, who's present everywhere, be limited as a man and be present in one place, like Bethlehem or Jerusalem or Galilee? How can God, who knows everything, become a man and as man have to learn and not know everything? Like, how, how is that possible? How can God, who's all-powerful and needs nothing or no one, become a man who's a little baby who needs his mama? How is that? But that's the greatest miracle of the Bible, the incarnation. It's the condescension of God, the humility of God. So, no, it shouldn't surprise us that he values humility when he sees it in a person like David. And he says, I'm going to take you from following the sheep, and I'm going to raise you up, and I'm going to make you the king of Israel, and you're going to lead my nation, and I'm going to make your name great. All right, so, so one application here is very simple. Be like David. Be humble, and God will exalt you. But there's another application here that I think is more powerful than that and I think will therefore actually potentially make you more humble. And that is, consider the condescension of God. Consider that God is king and needs nothing or no one. He doesn't need a building. He doesn't need people. He doesn't need anything. And yet he chooses to come among his people and dwell among his people in a tent a tent that you set up and take down, and you set up and you take down. A tent. And then in the form of a man who, with, with all the weaknesses that come with it, human frailty, human flesh, consider the condescension of God. And if that doesn't move you to humility, I, I, I don't know what will. I can't do much for that. Right? So ponder it. Consider it. The condescension of God, and let that move your heart toward humility. And those who are humble, God exalts. He'll, he'll give you a great name. This brings us to the second promise that we see here, the promise of a place of rest. Look at verse 10 with me. I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. 
And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give rest from all your enemies. This language comes directly from Deuteronomy 12. Moses is telling the people, when you cross over, you're going to enter the land. God's going to give you rest. He's going to give you land, and in the land you're going to have rest. Rest, peace with God, peace with, you know, rest from enemies. And in Deuteronomy 12, verse 11, Moses says, once you get to the place, once you get to the promised land, God will show you the specific location where the sacrifice is supposed to happen and the worship is supposed to happen. So they don't know. They go into the land knowing, they know it's this big piece of property. They know the promised land, but they don't yet know where in particular, like which city, what mountain, where is the specific place where they're supposed to, to build this the place where the people will gather and where the worship will happen and the sacrifices will happen. And so we're starting to get to this point of the storyline where we're starting to see that come to fruition. We're starting to see the place where the temple is going to be built. It's going to be in Jerusalem. We learned that for the first time in this part of the storyline. It's going to be in Jerusalem. The ark gets transported there in chapter 6. It's a fun story. It's a good story. Solomon's going to build a temple in this place. And so there's some significant transitions. Let me highlight three transitions that happen at this point of the story. First of all, we transition from judges to a king. Multiple judges, one king. We transition from a tent to a temple. And we transition from Shiloh as the center, central place of worship to Jerusalem as the central place of worship. And the way it transitions to Jerusalem is a, is a very fascinating story. It happens at the very end in chapter 24. And it happens as a result of David's sin. David takes a census of the people. He was warned not to do this. He did it anyway. It was a, it was a lack of humility. God punished him. He punishes him. God punishes David by taking the lives of 70,000 Israelites. David is told in order to avert God's wrath, to appease God's wrath, to stop this, he needs to go to this particular piece of land. They need to build an altar and they need to sacrifice to God. And he's told which piece of land. It's the land of Aranyah. And so he purchases the land from this man. They build, a sacri- they build a, an altar and they offer the sacrifice and the wrath of God is averted. And guess what that piece of land is that David purchases? It's the land that's going to become the place where the temple's going to be built and where the sacrifices are going to be performed so that the wrath of God is averted and the presence of God can dwell with his people. Right? It, it, if, if you can see on the picture, kind of right under the word rest, um, no longer rest is there. <laughs> no more rest in the city. Um, there's a, this up above, the, that's where David's palace is. And so he kind of lives up above the city, which, by the way, that's going to create some serious issues down the road for him. He lives in the palace looking over, so the piece of land that he buys where he builds the, 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 you know, the, the altar is just north of there, just above there. And so the place where the temple mount is going to be is technically in a different place than the city of David. So when you go there today, there's one place that's the city of David, there's the other place that's the former temple mount. So they're not in the exact same location, two different places, but very close to each other. And, and the history is important. This, this particular piece of land where the temple is going to be built is the same place where Abraham was to go sacrifice Isaac. It's the same place where David is supposed to build this altar. 
It's the same place where the temple is going to be built and there's going to be an infinite or an endless amount of sacrifices that are going to be made there. It's not infinite, but it seems, it seems unlimited because there's so many. And it's the same place where Jesus, it's near the same place where Jesus is going to be sacrificed. So think about this. Think about the relationship of the sacrifice and the, and the place and the promise of rest. Right? God has a plan from the beginning to dwell with his people. He, he promised them, I'm going to dwell with you and I'm going to give you a piece of land. But in order for me to dwell with you, sin has to be taken care of. I'm a holy God, you're a sinful people, so there has to be sacrifice. And so uh, what, what, what you have here is you have David sacrificing. The sacrifice appeases the wrath of God so that his people can dwell in the place, in the city, in the land, and be free and be at peace with God and be at peace with the people. Jesus comes along and he is the sacrifice. He gets sacrificed. He, he is sacrificed. Why? So the wrath of God can be appeased. Why? So we can dwell with God and God can dwell with us. And we can be his people and he can be our God. In ultimately a new place, a new Jerusalem, a place, a city. And we can be with him. We have the promise here of a place that deep down we're all longing for. I mentioned earlier, in order to know somebody, you've got to know certain things about them. And one of the things you've got to know about me, if you want to really know me, is I, I, I like country music. And in particular, I like 80s and 90s country music, and also like outlaw country. And so if you don't know what that is, you have to look that up later on. But I tell my kids all the time, there are certain themes in country music that you just don't find in other genres, including some Christian music. Right? And so it's good stuff. A lot of it. Some of it's bad, but a lot of it's good. <laughs> they remind me of the bad parts pretty frequently. Uh, one of the themes you hear in country music is this longing for home. Right? We want to go home. We want to get back home. Right? Country roads. Take me home to the place I belong. Right? I belong there. Take me home there. Right? A little darker version of the same song is Merle Haggard. He says, sing me back home, the song I used to hear. Make my old memories come alive. Take me away and turn back the years. Sing me back home before I die. We also have songs in country music that describe this desire to, to leave home. Like, I, I got to leave. I got to go. I, I'm longing for this journey, right? Um, for example, I just can't wait to get on the road again. On the road again. Just can't wait to get on the road again. Right? Like, get me out of here. I got to get on the road. I got to go somewhere. And there's another one that's, that's on the radio lately. It's kind of a remake of an older one. Heads Carolina, tails California, somewhere greener, somewhere warmer, up in the mountains, down by the ocean, where it don't matter as long as we're going. Like, let's just go somewhere. I don't care. Flip a coin. We just got to go somewhere. But there's a longing. See, it's describing something inside of each of us. We, long, we all long for home. And we all long for something more, something different, a journey. We, we, we want both. And it, it's something that can't ever totally be quenched. And this is my favorite C.S. Lewis quote. He says, If I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. If you have a longing inside of you that nothing in this world can satisfy, perhaps the most logical explanation is you were created for something more for something greater. And, and that there, there is a longing that we have for something more, 
And the promised land was, was a, a type that was pointing forward to it. Jerusalem is a type that's pointing forward to it. It's a promised land that we're craving that God has provided. The author of Hebrews talks about this. If Joshua could have provided a place of rest for the people, then David, many years later, wouldn't have spoken of a future day of rest. There's still a future longing. There's still a rest that God provides for us. And the author of Hebrews says, be diligent, strive to enter that rest. How do you enter it? By ceasing to work, by resting from your own works, and looking to the sacrifice God made through Jesus Christ at that location, just right outside of that city. The place where Jesus was sacrificed. Why? So that you could be right with God, be at peace with God, dwell with Him. He could dwell with you. And you could be at rest in the city of God for an eternity. It's what you're longing for. God has provided it. It's a promise of rest. Third, we have the promise of a relationship. Look at verse 12 with me. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers... I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. So God is saying to David, I'm promising you, you're going to have a son. And these promises that I'm making to you are going to be fulfilled in him. Now let's just pause and point out, that's a really common theme we see throughout the storyline. God promises someone a son who's going to accomplish the fulfillment of the promises that he's making to the person. And God says here, notice the language. God says, I'm going to have a a unique relationship with this person, like a father-son type of relationship. And I'm going to discipline him. When the son commits iniquity, I'm going to discipline him. So the God's going to have a unique relationship with this king. And we see that unique relationship with David. God has a fatherly type of relationship with David. And by the way, he punishes him when he sins. And David sins. We've already talked about one example, chapter 24, when he takes a census. The other example that you're familiar with is when he, his sin with Bathsheba in 2 Samuel chapter 11. His men are off at war. That's where he should be as the king. He's not there. He's at home. He's in his palace looking down on the city. He sees Bathsheba. He calls for her. He has an adulterous relationship with her. She gets pregnant. And uh, Uriah is her husband who's one of David's faithful men. So David devises his plan. I'm going to call Uriah off the battlefield to go home to be with his wife. And maybe he'll think the son is his. That's his plan. But Uriah comes back and says, I'm not going home. It's a time of war. I'm going to be faithful. And so David has to devise another plan. And so David puts him strategically on the battlefield so that he's killed. So David becomes a murderer. He's guilty of murder. He's also guilty of adultery. And when he's confronted by the prophet Nathan, he confesses. And we see his humility. He's very unlike Saul in this way. He confesses. He repents. We, we see that in Psalm 51. It's a great psalm. And by the way, God responds by forgiving him. And we see the grace of God. And God's promise to David is not nullified one bit. The promise of a son and these blessings is not nullified at all. And yet, there are significant consequences that come from David's sin. And that's a good reminder to us. God is gracious and God forgives. And God will not go back on his promises. But there are consequences for sin. 
his consequences are significant. In chapter 12, verse 10, God says to him, the sword shall never depart from your house. He's going to have to deal with drama and heartache and loss and death for his whole life. Read 2 Samuel. One of his sons, Amnon, is going to violate David's daughter, Tamar. And David apparently doesn't address the issue very well. And some have conjectured, possibly because David's guilty of his own sexual sin. Because he's guilty of his own sexual sin, perhaps he doesn't stand up and, and, and deal with the sin that he should have dealt with, with his son. So therefore, his other son, Absalom, takes matters into his own hand and kills Amnon. So David has one of his sons killing another one of his sons. That puts David at odds with Absalom. They don't speak for five years. And then they sort of go to war with each other. And Absalom dies. It's just heartache. Um, Even this great man who's given this great name experiences the brokenness and fallenness of this life. In fact, one of the consequences of his sin is God takes the life of that son. The first son born to Bathsheba by David, God takes that child's life. Now, does that nullify the promise? No, God provides another son to Bathsheba, interestingly. And that son is named Solomon, and that's the son through whom many of these promises are going to be fulfilled. It's definitely not going to happen by Michael, because Michael is a daughter of Saul. And the dynasty, the kingdom, has been removed from Saul. It's been given to David. And so it's going to come through David. And many of these promises that we see here in this text are fulfilled by Solomon. In fact, the New Testament talks about this. Listen to Acts 7.47. It was Solomon who built a house for him. So some of the promises made to David are fulfilled by Solomon, but some of the promises are, can't be fulfilled by Solomon, and they're fulfilled by someone else. They're fulfilled by Jesus. And one of the main arguments of the New Testament is just this. Jesus is the fulfillment of the promises made to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Listen to how one commentator said it. He said, The words recorded here in 2 Samuel 7 arguably play the single most significant role of any scripture found in the Old Testament in shaping the Christian understanding of Jesus. Because think about it. The New Testament is making this argument that Jesus is a son of Abraham and a son of David and the son of God. That's a central argument, isn't it? Jesus is the unique son of God. God is his father in a unique way. Why does the New Testament spend so much emphasis on that? Jesus is the son of God. It's because that's the promise that's made in 2 Samuel 7. That God's going to give a son to David. He's going to be a Davidic king. And he's going to usher in a kingdom. That's why Jesus says, when I'm in your midst, the kingdom of God is in your midst. The kingdom of God is among you because I'm among you. I'm here ushering in the kingdom of God. That's one of the central uh, teachings of Jesus. That's what most of the parables are about. The kingdom of God is here. And think about the message that the angel spoke to Mary, telling her that she's pregnant with this important child. Listen to the specific language the angel gives to her, telling her about this. Luke 1, 32 and 33. The Lord will give to him, Jesus, the throne of his father David and of his kingdom there will be no end. Listen to that. The Lord will give to Jesus the throne of his father David and of his kingdom there will be no end. Why is that so significant? Because Jesus is the fulfillment of the promises made to David in 2 Samuel 7. The promises are partially fulfilled by Solomon. By the way, that's how much of prophecy works. 
partially fulfilled, but not yet fully fulfilled. Partially fulfilled by Solomon, fully fulfilled in Jesus Christ. What about this part about the son committing iniquity and therefore being disciplined by God? I mean, that surely can't be about Jesus because Jesus didn't sin. But yet, Jesus is disciplined as if he was a sinner. He's not a sinner, but he takes the punishment for our sin. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. So he gets treated like the, the, the one who sinned, though he didn't. Listen to Hebrews 5, 8, and 9. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who believe in him. Jesus is the son who suffered. He didn't deserve any of it. Why did he suffer? So that we could be brought in and made sons and daughters of God. And he could become the source of salvation to us who believe to us who are sons and daughters. See, God uses the language of king to describe his relationship to us. He's a king. We are his subjects. Absolutely. In the exact same chapter, he also uses the, the, the imagery of a father. He's a father. He's a fatherly king. He's a fatherly king who wants to bring us in as his sons and daughters, and that's why he gave his one and only son so we could become heirs of the king sons and daughters of the king. So this language of father, son, it's crucial. It's biblical. It's necessary. There was a splash in the news recently with the Air Force Academy. Uh, they were providing training on how to use inclusive language. And by the way, this is happening everywhere, uh, all across our country, this training and using inclusive language. We want to be inclusive and not exclude and not be offensive. And so there was a slide that was used to describe the kinds of terms to use and the kind of terms to not use. And on that slide, there was examples like this. Use the word partner instead of boyfriend or girlfriend. Boyfriend, girlfriend, offensive. Partner, inoffensive, apparently. Right? However, I think if I called my wife my partner, that might be a little offensive to her. Uh, uh, use parents, caregivers, or guardians instead of mom and dad. So mom and dad, potentially offensive. Can't use mom and dad, use caregiver. Now the, the Air Force Academy responded and said, no, that's taken out of context. And they said, quote, the Air Force Academy does not prohibit the use of mom and dad. So that's good news, right? <laughs> good news, the Air Force Academy is not prohibiting the use of mom and dad. That's good because that's necessary language. Mom and dad is necessary for a society. Mom and dad is necessary for a biblical understanding, a, a right theology. God is father. He's king, but he's also father. And the good news is you can become his son. You can become his daughter. How? Because he gave his one and only son so that you could become sons of the living God. Now, you may say, well, I, you know, I, I don't have that. I don't have a a father or mother or a good relationship with my father and mother so therefore it's not overly helpful language to me um, I, I, interestingly there was a recent article in the Wall Street Journal that pointed to a correlation that they discovered between youth mental health crisis and families eating meals together and the Wall Street Journal said we see a connection there's a rise in mental health and depression among youth they said that 44% of high school students said they felt persistently sad or hopeless in the past year. That's a pretty high number. 
44% persistently sad or unhappy in the past year. But the Wall Street Journal also went on to say, listen to this, quote, at the same time, mounting scientific research shows that gathering for regular meals and conversations might be one way to build children's emotional resilience. We already knew that, didn't we? James Dobson's been telling us that since 1980s. Meals are important. Family meals are important. Eat together as a family. And now you got the Wall Street Journal saying, oh wow, this is a novel concept. There ought to be families, there ought to be moms and dads, and they ought to be gathering with their children regularly and having meals together. And there's something really healthy about that. And by the way, one of the side notes, it said, you know, you shouldn't be on your devices when you're doing that. I'm not making that up, kids. (laughs) Wall Street Journal says it. So the importance of family meals. We need to be reminded. Family meals, important. Gathering together, saying no to whatever you have to say no to so that you're not too busy. And I'm preaching to myself. So busy that you can't gather for family meals. It's crucial, right? And, and, And it's also a reminder to us, though, what about the person who says... I just don't have that. Like, I didn't have that growing up. I don't have that now. It's it's not available to me, you know? So do we just get rid of the language? Do we just get rid of father and mother and use other language that's more appropriate? And the answer is no. We have to have this language. You know deep down you long for that. You want that. You know it's missing. You know you want father. You, you, You want this relationship. And the good news is you can have it. You can have the love of the father who can love you better than any human father or mother can. And that human love, that human relationship is just a type. It's just pointing us to this greater, deeper love relationship that you can have with a father, the father, your heavenly father. The longing you have to know and be known and love and be loved by mom, by dad, it can be met, it can be satisfied by the one who created it all in the first place, your father. So go to him. As, as daughter. Go to him as son and be grafted into his family and sit at the table, at the royal table, the royal family, and become a son or daughter of the king. And this brings us forth the promise of a forever kingdom. The chapter began with David saying, I want to build God a house, a bayit. I want to build God a house. And God res- responds to David's desire to build God a temple. That's really what he means by house. David means a temple. And God responds, and look at how God responds in verse 11. 11b, the second sentence there. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. David says, I want to build a house for God. God says, I'm going to build a house for you. You're not going to build me a house. I'm going to build a house for you. But God doesn't use the language, I'm going to build a house for you. God says, I'm going to make you a house. I'm going to make you, David, a house. What does he mean by that? He doesn't ultimately mean a physical building. He ultimately means a dynasty. I'm going to make you a dynasty. I'm going to turn you into a kingdom. You want to make me a house? You're not going to. I'm going to make, I'm going to make you a house. I'm going to make you a house. But once again partially fulfilled by Solomon who does build a building a temple which is important it's a part of God's prescription but, but this promise is not ultimately fulfilled with Solomon it can't be Solomon dies 
And this is a promise of a forever king, a forever kingdom. That word forever, you'll see it three times there. Verse 12, there's an interesting phrase here I want to bring your attention to. Verse 12, God says to David, I will raise up your offspring after you. I will raise up your offspring after you. There's only one offspring of David that's been raised up, and that's Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was literally the offspring of David that was raised up. All the rest of them are dead. Right? And, and, and Jesus told us he was going to be raised up. Remember what he said? Destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up. And the Bible says the temple that he was referring to was the temple of his body. So he was raised up never to die again. In other words, he's the eternal king. He conquered death. He reigns forever, and his kingdom is forever. He sits on his throne forever. And this is why in verse 16, God says to David, your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And the author of Hebrews says, that's talking about Jesus. Because Hebrews 1.8 says, but of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. So the promises made to David are ultimately fulfilled by Jesus Christ. The promise of a great name, the promise of a place of rest, the promise of a relationship, the promise of a forever kingdom. They are fulfilled in Jesus Christ, but they can become yours. They can become yours today. You can become the recipient of these promises today. You say, how? I thought they were fulfilled by Jesus. They can become yours if you will become a part of his kingdom. If you will align with the King of Kings and bow the knee to the King of Kings, you can become a part of the kingdom of God and you can become the recipient of these promises. It happens by faith. How do you become a part of the kingdom of God? How do you get grafted in? You're not born into it. It comes by faith. Faith comes by hearing. You're hearing me right now. I hope you're hearing me. All you have to do is hear what I'm saying, trust that it's true, and believe it. Believe that Jesus Christ is the King of Kings who laid down His life as a sacrifice to satisfy the wrath of God so you can be at peace with God and live as His son or daughter forever in His kingdom and you'll be grafted in as royalty. And these promises that are fulfilled in Jesus Christ will become yours. God is not just a king who demands it. He does demand it, by the way. So for those of you who need to be persuaded by the fact that there's a king who's demanding it, by all means, hear his demand and respond. Submit to Jesus as king. Enter his kingdom. Not just the king who demands it. He's the father, the fatherly king, who says, I love you so much, I want you to come in. I invite you to come in to be my sons and daughters, to sit at my table. And I love you so much, I'll send my one and only son to pay the sacrifice for your sin so you can be brought to the table and sit at the table of the king. What are you possibly waiting for? What is possibly holding you back? Go to Jesus Christ, submit to him, trust in him, and become a part of God's family. Let's pray.